When I uh, go to lunch or dinner and it's just me and my wife and my daughter, this is pretty much how the conversation goes, like this. And then once in a while, when I inject something in there, they will both begin to laugh and say, you know, we were talking about that five minutes ago. You're just way behind. And so I go back to this. Because it's less painful. Now, I can follow only linear progression. The staff knows two things about Tuesday mornings. A, you better be on time. B, don't come with a long diatribe of thought. Just give me some bullet points. I can go linear. I can't start here, go up here, come over here, back over here, here, and back. I'm gone. Paul, in almost every letter that he does, is really linear. Romans is a long book of linear response to the gospel of Christ. 1 Corinthians is linear. He starts with a Issue here, and an issue here, and an issue here, and he goes all the way through. Virtually every book he writes is like that, except this one. This one is all over the place. Primarily, it is centered around him defending his ministry. And it starts out, God being the comfort of everything, but then he starts talking about, they're attacking about his change of plans. He says, forgive the sinner. He goes back to all this stuff, and he winds up, In the middle of defending his ministry, he jumps into this thing about dying. And remember, we just finished a long section where he says, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. You have this guarantee of the Holy Spirit that that when when you die, you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. He's going to take care of you. You have this long dialogue about death. And then, now, he comes back in 2 Corinthians 5. Look, we're going to look at 11 through 15 today, but look at what he says in the middle. Beginning in verse 12, 2 Corinthians 5. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but causing you to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. If we are beside ourselves, that is, if our heart's going crazy, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. Now, he says to them, he's back on the train, he's just left this long thing about what happens when we die. And now he's back on the train of defending his ministry. Now you need to understand, he's not being petulant. He's not being a brat. He's not being childish because somebody attacked him. So he's coming out with a tweet and a criticism. I don't know who does that today, but apparently some do. So he doesn't do that. His response is because he understands. Look at what he just said. He said, they're worried about appearance. I'm concerned about the heart. Obviously, Paul's not good-looking, he's not handsome, not articulate, he's not a great speaker. He doesn't have anything going for him physically, and some of these people that have stepped into the church that are bringing this legal code in there have stepped in and said, come on, man, the Jews don't like him, look at him, he's not even good-looking, he's ugly. And so Paul says, look, he doesn't disagree with that, he says, but... It's the heart that God's concerned about, not the appearance. Now, what he's concerned about is if they embrace the legalism of these people, 
it will wreck the church. He's not concerned about his own petulance. He's concerned about the health of the church. Remember, they don't have what we have, right? Number one, they don't, everybody has a Bible in their home. Nobody has a Bible in their home. The only time they get the Bible is when they come Sundays. Pastor has maybe most of the Old Testament. He has no New Testament. It's being written. So they don't have it. Now, if you read the Old Testament carefully, it's real easy to take that book and take it and say, okay, we've got to keep all sorts of rules to be right with God. And Paul fears that if they do that, they're going to lose everything they are in Christ. That's why, for example, when Paul talks to us about the home, particularly those of us as men, he does not say, men, don't cheat on your wife. He doesn't say that. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. He doesn't tell us not to cheat on our wives. Why? Because if he said, look, don't cheat on your wives, there are men that would embrace that and they'd do everything else. I mean, I know men that will come in and say, yeah, I've gone to all these websites, but I haven't cheated on my wife. We had a president who basically lived that primitive house. I didn't cheat on my wife, but I've done everything else. Paul knows if you get caught up in the rule the rule becomes your guideline. But if you take the principle of, I need to choose to love my wife, now all of a sudden, am I going to a website she thinks I shouldn't go to? No, sir. Certainly not Jesus and certainly not her. When those two things are combined, I'm not going to that website. Am I going to cheat on my wife if I love her? No. Am I going to step beyond just not cheating and if I love her as Christ loved the church, are there not also other things I'm going to do inside the marriage that are way beyond just not cheating? Absolutely. So what he's afraid of, if the church gets locked into rules, which is a Southern Baptist history, if we get locked into rules and miss the heart, we miss it all. So, he writes this. He says, I don't care what I look like. I don't care what you look like. It's your heart that matters. Now, inside this passage, there is bookended how your heart is to react. It's going to give you two things, both of which have to be in your life. It's going to give you one thing here. It's going to give you one thing over here. And both of these have to be in your life or your heart will not respond correctly to Jesus Christ. Now, Cowboys play at seven. If they do, we have plenty of time. So I want you to relax. I'll call out the passages. But I won't have time to wait for you to get there. And I don't want you to 2% me. We had Billy and Mary Kennedy share at, a, at an adult event the other night. And before they shared, they showed the video. Was it 43 seconds last year against Iowa State? I'm watching the game against Iowa State last year. 
And I'm going nuts because I'm thinking it gets 43 seconds. It's over. I almost, I got to confess, I was almost 2%, almost turned the TV off. But I thought, well, it's 43 seconds. I'll wait. Well, all of a sudden, hey, you steal this. They make this shot. They get in here. They do all this stuff. And it looks like we're pulling it out. And then a guy from Iowa State takes it, runs a court, slam dunks it. And then I'm chunking stuff going, well, there you go. God convicted me, and I stayed. And then we come back down the court, and amazingly, we tie the game, and we win. As a matter of fact, overtime was anticlimactic. I didn't even care if we won or lost, because that's the greatest last part of the game I've ever seen. Now, one of the poor basketball players, his parents, who are great people, left the game because they're like everybody else. They're thinking, well, we got no chance to beat the traffic. They hit a convenience store and find out they're still playing. So, we're going to cover some ground today. Don't leave me. Number two, don't do the Baptist thing. Because I'm going to say something you're not going to like, so don't do the Baptist thing and go, well, I'm done now. (laughs) Okay? Hang in there with me. We're looking at two things. They're in the Bible. You're not going to like one, and I know what you're going to be thinking. I know a little verse that's going to run around in your head, but we will deal with that verse in a moment. Look in verse 11. Here's the first thing you have to have in your life for your heart to function correctly toward Jesus Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What we are is known to God. I hope it is known also to your conscience. He says, we persuade others. We go around this world telling people about Jesus because we know the fear of the Lord. We know what is coming. Now, what is exactly? And how do you develop in your life the fear of the Lord? Now, here we go. Genesis chapter 3. Now, they've had this great relationship, right? He comes down in the middle of the day, cool of the day. They talk about the animals they've named, the plants they've done. They share about their lives together. They have this great relationship with him. Is he mean to them in this time frame, by the way? Does he have temper tantrums? Does he get angry here? No. Now, watch this. They eat the fruit of the tree he told them not to. Three ate the herd of the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which they've always heard. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What's happened here? He is all of a sudden fearful of God. Why? Because God's mean to him? No. Because for the first time in his existence, he realizes now when God shows up in the garden, we are different. There's something I am that is no longer in tune with what he is. He's holy. I'm not. I don't think Adam could have put it in that terminology at this point. But that's what you find. Now, go with me to Isaiah 
chapter 6. Now listen to what he says. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high, lifted up. Talks about the train of his robe, the ceremony. Look in verse 3. One called another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 5. I said, woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why is he afraid? Same reason Adam and Eve are afraid. Because it dawns on him. Now listen. If you catch him before Isaiah 6, if you catch Isaiah before this vision and you ask him, Isaiah, are you a sinner? He'd have said, yeah, absolutely. Isaiah, uh, is God holy? Absolutely. But now it's no longer here. He sees the Lord. Now it's experiential. It's gone in here, and now he says, oh, my goodness, I'm done. He's holy, I'm not. And that distinction creates a fear in him a justifiable fear look at Hebrews all the way back to the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 Hebrews 10 31 and listen to this statement and then I, you go there I'm going to go over to Matthew 10, 28, and I will read that to you in a moment. Now listen to Hebrews 10, 31. Simple statement. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, you say, fearful for us? We don't fall into his hands. Remember what we've learned the last few weeks? Jesus comes he catches us, he delivers, he escorts us, and he delivers us. He takes his hands and pulls us home. We don't fall into his hands, but when you don't know Jesus Christ, you fall into God's hands, and it is, the Bible says, a fearful thing. Why? Because unholiness, when it faces holiness, the danger and the fear are incredible. Listen to Matthew. You stay where you are. And listen, go back to Second Corinthians 5, but listen to Matthew 10, 28. Here's what it says. So have, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, we have a God that is supposed to be feared. And that you will fear if you understand the distinction between you and him. Nobody's saved until that distinction becomes experiential in their life. When you realize who you are and who he is and the gap between those two things, you will automatically fear him. Now, that is one pull. Now I hear the wheels turning. 
I hear all of you wanting to scream out at me. Yeah, but 1 John 4, perfect love, cast out fear, preacher. I can feel it. So, we go back to 2 Corinthians 5, and we discover that you are partially correct. Look down at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this. One has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, he says, we are controlled by the love of Jesus Christ. Right? We're controlled by that. How do we know that? Because he died for everybody, therefore everybody's in trouble. Everybody has to face the Lord without, and if you face it without Christ, you're doomed. So we are controlled by the love of Jesus Christ. Okay then, preacher, then I don't fool with the idea that I have to fear the Lord. I don't have to fear him anymore. 1 John 4, perfect love casts out fear. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, just two chapters over. Look at 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, how do you have the promises? Because he loves you. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the love of God. What's it say? In the fear of God. So apparently, for Paul, you have to be controlled by both. You're controlled by the love of Jesus Christ, while at the same time, the fear of the Lord is apparent and real in your life. Both have to drive you. And as a matter of fact, that is precisely what happens in the early church. Now, when you, we don't have time this morning. When you go home, look at 1 John 4. In that chapter, it says, perfect love cast out fear, but here's what it says. It says, perfect love casts out fear of, anybody know what it says right there? 1 John 4, perfect love casts out fear of, uses a word. Anybody know what that word is? Punishment. It says it casts out fear of punishment. In other words, I know there's a distinction between me and God. Perfect love does not cast away that distinction. That distinction's still there. I'm still unholy. He's holy. I'm trying to narrow that gap, but that's still there. That distinction is not cast away. What is cast away is the idea that because I'm unholy, he may change his mind, and when I get to the exit point, not take me home. No, I know that's going to happen because my punishment was taken upon the cross. He's not going to quit being my father. He's not going to unadopt me. He's not going to turn on me. He's not going to hate me. He's not going to have a temper tantrum at me. So perfect love that controls me cast away that aspect of fear. But perfect love is never to remove the distinction between me and who he is and that he, listen, even with you and I in this room, as a matter of fact, particularly with you and I in this room, is serious about that distinction. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Remember the story in the New Testament? They're raising money for a children's building. 
God comes in and says, yeah, I gave this much. Peter says, really? You gave that much? That's what you put on your pledge card? Yeah. He said, what made you think you could lie to the Holy Spirit and he falls down dead? Which I think would be a tremendous fundraiser here. <laughs> We'd pay for that building like in a week. And the Bible makes this statement, great fear duh, fell upon the church. His wife comes in. Peter gives her a shot. Hey, she doesn't know her husband's dead. He says, hey, her husband said the pledge card had this on it. Is that true? Yeah. Poof. She's dead. And it says, again, great fear fell upon the church. Why? Because even though I can't lose my adoption, no, he's not going to cast me out. Even though it's an absolute guarantee that when I get to the excess on, buddy, I'm going home. Doesn't mean that he ignores who and what I am. 1 Corinthians 11. Look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why... Now, before we read this verse, I want you to listen to what they were doing. They didn't do it at a worship service. They had what they called an agape feast, and they would have potluck dinner. So it's kind of proof that they may have been Baptists. They had a potluck dinner, but here's the problem they had. They had a very rich and poor congregation. It was potluck, so the rich would bring great food and alcohol. The poor brought nothing. They came to it, but they didn't have anything. So the rich were not sharing their food with the poor. And on top of that, at this moment where they're supposed to be celebrating the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, they're getting cold stone drunk. So they're not taking care of the poor, and they're drunk. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Because, matter of fact, look in verse 33. So my brothers, when you come together, eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. There are people in the church that because of their mistreatment of the poor and their ignorance of who Jesus Christ really was, God took them home. Because he wanted them to understand. You can be forgiven. I love you. You're adopted. You've got my spirit in you. When you die, I'm coming to get you. Don't you dare think that because all of that is true, that you don't fear the difference between us still today. We operate off both. If we only operate off love, and what we do when we come to the Scripture and it tells us to do something, we say, well, yeah, I know what it says, but God will, what? Forgive me. If I only live over here, I don't even pray because I'm so guilty and I'm so squirming and I'm just, I can't go because I'm so bad. But if they balance, there's a tremendous health 
to who I am. There's a story, we won't go there, in the sixth chapter of Mark where Jesus does this profound miracle. He feeds 15,000, probably close to 15,000 people with two fish, five pieces of bread. Big deal. They take up 12 baskets. The disciples know they didn't do the miracle because he asked them to do something about it, and they said, we don't know what to do. So they know he did it, and they couldn't, and they didn't, but it was no big deal. They just kind of blew it off. So he says, okay, get in the boat, get on the Lake Galilee, I'll meet you on the other side. He goes up and he prays all night, I think specifically for them. He comes walking on the water, and they're in this storm. Now, it was curious, a couple years ago, I think the last group we took to Israel, we'll get on the, on the Sea of Galilee, we actually get caught in the storm. We're the only boat out there. You can see the shore, but we can't get in the shore. I mean, and we're in a much bigger boat than they're in. They're basically in like a canoe with steroids. So they go over, they're drowning. There's no Coast Guard, there's no GPS, there's no flotation devices under your seat. They're dead. So they're terrified, right? Storm. The Bible is very clear. It says they look up and they see Jesus walking. And it says that they thought, it says two things, basically. This is the Greek. It says, number one, they thought he was a phantom, phantasma. They thought he was a ghost. And then the other thing in the Greek, it says, and they screamed like little junior high girls in a movie theater. So they go nuts. They're horrified. They're screaming, and Jesus steps into the boat. He goes, Si, quit being afraid. You little sissies. He doesn't say that, but that's the intent. He says, you guys got nothing. He steps into the boat. The wind stops. Waves get calm. All of a sudden, the boat's not rocking. They get to shore, and it says that they are utterly astonished at him. Listen to me. If you ask them right here, which scared you more, the storm or Jesus? I'm not sure they could answer you. He now terrifies them because they understand what? He is not what they And it brings a healthy fear on them. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you this. If you had caught them after the feeding of the 15,000, and you had said, hey, man, the Aggies are playing tonight. We're going to get a tub of brew, chips. We're going to watch a game, and we'll just get drunk. We'll have a great time, man. I think some of them might. I mean, Peter's a fisherman. Some of these guys are fishermen. They might have gone, yeah, one night. you come and ask them after he steps in the boat and they get to the land and they're still horrified and astounded at who he is in a very real sense there's a reverential awe and they fear him I guarantee you these guys 
you come up to them and say, hey, we got some brew. You won't get that out of your mouth before you say, listen, buddy, back off. We're not doing anything that he would not be okay with. Which is why at the last part, he says, he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You want to really live for Jesus? You want your heart to be where it needs to be? Then you walk between two poles. He loves you, but he is so serious about sin that he put his own son on the cross so that we could be forgiven because without that death, we can't be. That perfect love is never to cast out of our mind. Let's pray. Father, I know my own heart vacillates between the two at times. Hold me in the middle so that my heart will be to please you and nothing else. Speak this morning. Bring that clarity not to our heads but to our hearts. In Jesus Christ's name. The heads bowed, eyes closed. Steph and I are here at the front. Anything God has laid on your heart, you want us to pray for you? You want us to pray with you? You need to accept Christ? You need to be a part of this church? Any decision. As the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart this morning, you come.